Hey there, welcome to episode 12, where we finally reach the end of the first chapter um, of Walden, which is economy. Um, Henry talks a lot about furniture, um, but then also philanthropy. So come join us. My furniture, part of which I made myself, and the rest, cost me nothing of which I have not rendered an account consisted of a bed, a table, a desk, three chairs, a looking glass three inches in diameter, a pair of tongs and andirons, a kettle, a skillet, and a frying pan, a dipper, a wash bowl, two knives and forks, three plates, one cup, one spoon, a jug for oil, a jug for molasses, and a japanned lamp. None is so poor that he needs sit on a pumpkin. That is shiftlessness. There is plenty of such chairs as I like best in the village garrets to be had for taking them away. Furniture! Thank God I can sit and I can stand without the aid of a furniture warehouse. What man but a philosopher would not be ashamed to see his furniture packed in a cart and going up a country exposed to the light of heaven and the eyes of men, a beggarly account of empty boxes? That is Spaulding's furniture. I could never tell from inspecting such a load whether it belonged to a so-called rich man or poor one. The owner always seemed poverty-stricken. Indeed, the more you have of such things, the poorer you are. Each load looks as if it contained the contents of a dozen shanties, and if one shanty is poor, this is a dozen times as poor. Pray, for what do we move ever but to get rid of our furniture, our exuviae, at last to go from this world to another newly furnished and leave this to be burned. It is the same as if all these traps were buckled to a man's belt and he could not move over the rough country where our lines are cast without dragging them, dragging his trap. He was a lucky fox that left his tail in the trap. The muskrat will gnaw his third leg off to be free. No wonder man has lost his elasticity. How often he's at a dead set. Sir, if I may be so bold, what do you mean by a dead set? If you are a seer, whenever you meet a man, you will see that all that he owns, I, and much that he pretends to disown, behind him. Even to his kitchen furniture and all the trumpery which he saves and will not burn, and he will appear to be harnessed to it and making what headway he can. I think that the man is at a dead set who has got through a knothole or gateway where his sledge load of furniture cannot follow him. I cannot but feel compassion when I hear some trig, compact-looking man, seemingly free, all girded and ready, speak of his furniture, as whether it is insured or not. But what shall I do with my furniture? My gay butterfly is entangled in a spider's web then. Even those who seem for a long while not to have any, if you inquire more narrowly, you will find have some stored in somebody's barn. I look upon England today as an old gentleman who is traveling with a great deal of baggage trumpery, which has accumulated from long housekeeping, which he has not the courage to burn. Great trunk, little trunk, bandbox, and bundle. Throw away the first three, at least. It would surpass the powers of a well man nowadays to take up his bed and walk, and I should certainly advise a sick one to lay down his bed and run. When I have met an immigrant tottering under a bundle which contained his all, looking like an enormous wen which had grown out of the nape of his neck. I've pitied him, not because that was his all, but because he had all that he could carry. 
If I have got to drag my trap, I will take care that it be a light one and do not nip me in the vital part. But perchance it would be wisest never to put one's paw into it. I would observe, by the way, that it costs me nothing for curtains, for I have no gazers to shut out but the sun and moon, and I am willing that they should look in. The moon will not sour milk nor taint meat of mine, nor will the sun injure my furniture or fade my carpet. And if he is sometimes too warm a friend, I find it still better economy to retreat behind some curtain which nature has provided than to add a single item to the details of housekeeping. A lady once offered me a mat, but as I had no room to spare within the house, nor time to spare within it or without to shake it, I declined it, preferring to wipe my feet on the sod before my door. It is best to avoid the beginnings of evil." Not long since, I was present at the auction of a deacon's effects, for his life had not been ineffectual. The evil that men do lives after them. As usual, a great proportion was trumpery, which had begun to accumulate in his father's day. Among the rest was a dried tapeworm. And now, after lying half a century in his garret and other dust holes, these things were not burned. Instead of a bonfire or purifying destruction of them, there was an auction or increasing of them. The neighbors eagerly collected to view them, bought them all, and carefully transported them to their garrets and dust holes to lie there till their estates are settled when they will start again. When a man dies, he kicks the dust. The customs of some savage nations might, perchance, be profitably imitated by us, for they at least go through the semblance of casting their slow annually. They have the idea of the thing, whether they have the reality or not. Would it not be well if we were to celebrate such a busk or feast of first fruits, as Bartram describes to have been the custom of the Muklas Indians? When a town celebrates the busk, says he, having previously provided themselves with new clothes, new pots, pans, and other household utensils and furniture, they collect all their worn-out clothes and other despicable things, sweep and cleanse their houses, squares, and the whole town of their filth, which with all the remaining grain and other old provisions they cast together into one common heap and consume it with fire." After having taken medicine and fasted for three days, all the fire in the town is extinguished. During this fast, they abstain from the gratification of every appetite and passion whatever. The general amnesty is proclaimed. All malefactors may return to their town. On the fourth morning, the high priest, by rubbing dry wood together, produces new fire in the public square, from whence, whence every habitation in the town is supplied with the new and pure flame. They then feast on the new corn and fruits and dance and sing for three days. And the four following days, they receive visits and rejoice with their friends from neighboring towns who have, in a like manner, purified and prepared themselves. The Mexicans also practiced a similar purification at the end of every 52 years in the belief that it was time for the world to come to an end. I have scarcely heard of a truer sacrament that is, as the dictionary defines it, outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, than this, and I have no doubt that they were originally inspired directly from heaven to do thus, though they have no biblical record of the revelation. For more than five years, I maintained myself thus solely by the labor of my hands, and I found that by working about six weeks in a year, I could meet all the expenses of living. The whole of my winters, as well as most of my summers, I had free and clear for study. 
I have thoroughly tried schoolkeeping and found that my expenses were in proportion, or rather out of proportion to my income, for I was obliged to dress and train, not to say think and believe accordingly, and I lost my time into the bargain. As I did not teach for the good of my fellow men, but simply for a livelihood, this was a failure. I have tried trade, but I found that it would take 10 years to get underway in that, and, then, and that then I should probably be on my way to the devil. I was actually afraid that I might by that time be doing what is called a good business. When formerly I was looking about to see what I could do for a living, some sad experience in conforming to the wishes of friends, being fresh in my mind, to tax my ingenuity, I thought often and seriously of picking huckleberries. That surely I could do, and its small profits might suffice, for my greatest skill has been to want but little. So little capital are required, so little distraction from my wanted moods, I foolishly thought. While my acquaintances went unhesitatingly into trade or their professions, I complicated this occupation as most like theirs, ranging the hills all summer to pick the berries which came in my way, and thereafter carelessly dispose of them, so to keep the flocks of Admetus. I also dreamed that I might gather the wild herbs or carry evergreens to such villagers as love to be reminded of the woods, even to the city, by hay cart loads. But I have since learned that trade curses everything it handles, and though you trade in messages from heaven, the whole curse of trade attaches to the business. As I preferred some things to others, and especially valued my freedom, as I could fare, hard, and yet succeed well, I did not wish to spend my time in earning rich carpets or other fine furniture or delicate cookery, or in a house in the Grecian or the Gothic style just yet. If there are any to whom it is no interruption to acquire these things, and who know how to use them when acquired, I relinquish them to the pursuit. Some are industrious, and appear to love labor for its own sake, or perhaps because it keeps them out of worse mischief, to such I have at present nothing to say. Those who would not know what to do with more leisure than they now enjoy, I might advise to work twice as hard as they do, work till they pay for themselves, and get their free papers. For myself, I found that the occupation of a day laborer was the most independent of any, especially as it required only 30 or 40 days in a year to support one. The laborer's day ends with the going down of the sun, and he is then free to devote himself to his chosen pursuit, independent of his labor. But his employer, who speculates from month to month, has no respite from one end of the year to the other. In short, I am convinced, both by faith and experience, that to maintain oneself on this earth is not a hardship, but a pastime. If we will live simply and wisely, as the pursuits of the simpler nation, nations are still the sport of the more artificial, it is not necessary that a man should earn his living by the sweat of his brow unless he sweats easier than I do. One young man of my acquaintance, who has inherited some acres, told me that he thought he should live as I did, if he had the means. I would not have anyone adopt my mode of living on any account, for besides that before he had fairly learned it, I may have found out another for myself. I desire that there may be as many different persons in the world as possible, but I would have each one be very careful to find out and pursue his own way, and not his father's or his mother's or his neighbor's instead. 
The youth may build or plant or sail, only let him not be hindered from doing that which he tells me he would like to do. It is by a mathematical point only that we are wise, as the sailor or the fugitive slave keeps the pole star in his eye, but that is sufficient guidance for all our life. We may not arrive at our port within a calculable period, but we would preserve the true course. Undoubtedly in this case, what is true for one is truer still for a thousand, as a large house is not proportionally more expensive than a small one, since one roof may cover, one cellar underlie, and one wall separate several apartments. But for my part, I prefer the solitary dwelling. Moreover, it it will commonly be cheaper to build the whole yourself than to convince another of the advantage of the common wall. And when you have done this, the common partition, to be much cheaper, must be a thin one, and that other may prove a bad neighbor, and also not keep his side in repair. The only cooperation which is commonly possible is exceedingly partial and superficial, and what little true cooperation there is, is as if it were not, being a harmony inaudible to men. If a man has faith, he will cooperate with equal faith faith everywhere. If he has not faith, he will continue to live like the rest of the world, whatever company he is joined to. To cooperate in the highest as well as the lowest sense means to get our living together. I heard it proposed lately that two young men should travel together over the world, the one without money, earning his means as he went, before the mast and behind the plow, the other carrying a bill of exchange in his pocket. It was easy to see that they would not long be companions or cooperate, since one would not operate at all. They would part in the first interesting crisis in their adventures. Above all, as I have implied, the man who goes alone can start today, but he who travels with another must wait till the other is ready, and it may be a long time before they get off. But all this is very selfish. I have heard some of my townsmen say, I confess that I have hitherto indulged very little in philanthropic enterprises. I have made some sacrifices to a sense of duty, and among others have sacrificed this pleasure also. There are those who have used all their arts to persuade me to undertake the support of some poor family in the town. And if I had nothing to do, for the devil finds employment for the idle, I might try my hand at some such pastime as that. However, when I have thought to indulge myself in this respect and lay their heaven under an obligation by maintaining certain poor persons in all respects as comfortably as I maintain myself and have even ventured so far as to make them the offer, they have one and all unhesitatingly preferred to remain poor. While my townsmen and women are devoted in so many ways to the good of their fellows, I trust that one at least may be spared to another and less humane pursuits. You may have a genius for charity as well as for anything else. As for doing good, that is one of the professions which are full. Moreover, I have tried it fairly, and, strange as it may seem, I am satisfied that it does not agree with my constitution. Probably I should not consciously and deliberately forsake my particular calling to do the good which society demands of me, to save the universe from annihilation, and I believe that a like but infinitely greater steadfastness elsewhere is all that now preserves it. But I would not stand between any man and his genius— 
and to him who does this work, which I decline, with his whole heart and soul and life, I would say, persevere, even if the world call it doing evil, as it most likely they will. I am far from supposing that my case is a peculiar one. No doubt many of my readers would make a similar defense. At doing something, I will not engage that my neighbors shall pronounce it good. I do not hesitate to say that I should be a capital fellow to hire, but what that is, it is for my employer to to find out. What good I do, in the common sense of that word, must be aside from my main path, and for the most part, wholly unintended. Men say, practically, begin where you are and such as you are without aiming mainly to become of more worth and with kindness of forethought, go about doing good. If I were to preach it all in this strain, I should say rather, set about being good. As if the sun should stop when he has kindled his fires up to the splendor of the moon, or a star of the sixth magnitude, and go about like a Robin Goodfellow, peeping in at every cottage window, inspiring lunatics and tainting meats and making darkness visible, instead of steadily increasing his gen- genial heat and beneficence, till he is of such brightness that so no mortal can look him in the face, and then, and in the meanwhile too, going about the world in his own orbit, doing it good, or rather as a truer philosophy has discovered, the world going about him getting good. When Phaeton, wishing to prove his heavenly birth by his beneficence, had the sun's chariot but one day and drove out of the beaten track, he burned several blocks of houses in the lower streets of heaven and scorched the surface of the earth and dried up every spring and made the great desert of Sahara still till at length Jupiter hurled him headlong to the earth with a thunderbolt and the sun, through grief at his death, did not shine for a year. There is no odor so bad as that which arises from goodness tainted. It is human, it is divine, carrion. If I knew for certainty that a man was coming to my house with a conscious design of doing me good, I should run for my life. As from that dry and parching wind of the African deserts called the Simum, which fills the mouth and nose and ears and eyes with dust till you are suffocated, for fear that I should get some of his good done to me, some of its virus mingled with my blood. No, no. In this case, I would rather suffer evil the natural way. A man is not a good man to me because he will feed me if I should be starving or warn me if I should be freezing or pull me out of a ditch if I should ever fall into one. I can find you a Newfoundland Newfoundland dog that will do as much. Philanthropy is not love for one's fellow man in the broadest sense. Howard was no doubt an exceedingly kind and worthy man in his way and has his reward, but comparatively speaking, what are a hundred Howards to us, to us, if their philanthropy does not help us in our best estate when we are most worthy to be helped? I never heard of a philanthropic meeting in which it was sincerely proposed to do any good to me or the like of me. The, Jes- the Jesuits were quite balked by those Indians who, being burned at the stake, suggested new modes of torture to their tormentors. Being superior to physical suffering, it sometimes chanced that they were superior to any consolation which the missionaries could offer, and the law to do as you would be done by fell with less persuasiveness on the ears of those who, for their part, did not care how they were done by, 
who loved their enemies after a new fashion and came very near freely forgiving them all that they did. Be sure that you give the poor the aid they most need, though it be your example which leaves them far behind. If you give money, spend yourself with it and do not merely abandon it to them. We make curious mistakes sometimes. Often the poor man is not so cold and hungry as he is dirty and ragged and gross. It's partly his taste and not merely his misfortune. If you give him money, he will perhaps buy more rags with it. I was wont to pity the clumsy Irish laborers who cut ice in the pond in such mean and ragged clothes while I shivered in my more tidy and somewhat more fashionable garments till one bitter cold day, one who had slipped into the water came to my house to warm him, and I saw him strip off three pairs of pants and two pairs of stockings ere he got down to the skin. And though they were dirty and ragged enough, it is true, and that he could afford to refuse the extra garments which I offered him, he had so many intra ones. This ducking was the very thing he needed. Then I began to pity myself, and I saw that it would be a greater charity to bestow on me a flannel shirt than a whole slop shop to him. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root, and it may be that he who bestows the largest amount of time and money on the needy is doing the most by his mode of self to produce that misery which he strives in vain to relieve. It is the pious slave breeder devoting the proceeds of every tenth slave to buy a Sunday's liberty for the rest. Some show their kindness to the poor by employing them in their kitchens. Would they not be kinder if they employed themselves there? You boast of spending a tenth part of your income in charity. Maybe you should spend the nine-tenths so and done with it. Society recovers only a tenth part of the property then. Is this owing to the generosity of him in whose possession it is found, or to the remissness of the officers of justice? Philanthropy is almost the only virtue which is sufficiently appreciated by mankind. Nay, it is greatly overrated, and it is our selfishness which overrates it. A robust poor man one sunny day here in Concord, praised a fellow townsman to me because, as he said, he was kind to the poor, meaning himself. The kind uncles and aunts of the race are more esteemed than its true spiritual fathers and mothers. I once heard a reverend lecturer on England, a man of learning and intelligence, after enumerating her scientific, literary, and political worthies, Shakespeare, Bacon, Cromwell, Milton, Newton, and others, speak next of her Christian heroes, whom, as if his profession required it of him, he elevated to a place far above all the rest, as the greatest of the great. They were Penn, Howard, and Mrs. Fry. Everyone must feel the falsehood and cant of this. The last were not England's best men and women, only, perhaps, her best philanthropists. I would not subtract anything from the praise that is due to philanthropy, but merely demand justice for all who by their lives and works are a blessing to mankind. I do not value chiefly a man's uprightness and benevolence, um, which are, as it were, his stems and leaves. Those plants of whose greenness withered, we make herb tea for the sick, serve but a humble use, and most are employed by quacks. 
I want the the flower and fruit of a man, that some fragrance be wafted over from him to me, and some ripeness flavor our intercourse. His goodness must not be a partial and transitory act, but a constant superfluity, which costs him nothing and of which he is unconscious. This is a charity which hides a multitude of sins. The philanthropist too often surrounds mankind with the remembrance of his own cast-off griefs as an atmosphere and calls it sympathy. We should impart our courage and not our despair, our health and ease and not our disease, and take care that this does not spread by contagion. From what southern plains comes up the voice of wailing? Under what latitudes reside the heathen to whom we could send light? Who is that intemperate and brutal man whom we would redeem? If anything ail a man so that he does not perform his functions, as if he have a pain in his bowels even, for that is the seat of sympathy, he forthwith sets about reforming the world. Being a microcosm himself, he discovers, and it is a true discovery, and he is the man to make it, that the world has been eating green apples. To his eyes, in fact, the globe itself is a great green apple, which there is danger awful to think of that the children of men will nibble before it is ripe, and straightway his drastic philanthropy seeks out the Esquimaux and the Patagonian and embraces the populous Indian and Chinese villages, and thus, by a few years of philanthropic activity, the powers in the meanwhile using him for his own ends, no doubt he cures himself of this dyspepsia, the globe acquires a faint blush on one or both of its cheeks, as if it were beginning to be ripe, and life loses its crudity and it is once more sweet and wholesome to live. I never dreamed of any enormity greater than I have committed. I never knew, and never shall know, a worse man than myself. I believe that what so saddens the reformer is not his sympathy with his fellows in distress, but though he be the holiest son of God, is his private ale. Let this be righted. Let the spring come to him, the morning rise over his couch, and he will forsake his generous companions without apology. My excuse for not lecturing against the use of tobacco is that I never chewed it. That is a penalty which reformed tobacco chewers have to pay. There are things, enough I have chewed, which I could lecture against. If you should ever be betrayed into any of these philanthropies, do not let your left hand know what your right does, for it is not worth knowing. Rescue the drowning and tie your shoestrings. Take your time and set about some free labor. Our manners have been corrupted by communication with the saints. Our hymn books resound with a melodious cursing of God and enduring him forever. One would say that even the prophets and redeemers had rather consoled the fears than confirmed the hopes of man. There is nowhere a recorded a sample and irrepressible satisfaction with the gift of life. Any memorable praise of God, all health and success does me good, however far off and withdrawn it may appear. All disease and failure helps to make me sad and does me evil, however much sympathy it may have with me or I with it. If then we would indeed restore mankind by truly Indian, botanic, magnetic, or natural means, let us first be as simple and well as nature ourselves, dispel the clouds which hang over our own brows, and take up a little life into our pores. Do not stay to be an overseer of the poor, but endeavor to become one of the worthies of the world. 
I read in the Gulistan, or flower garden, of Sheikh Saadi of Shiraz, that they asked a wise man, saying, Of the many celebrated trees which the Most High God has created lofty and umbragous, they call none azad, or free, excepting the cypress, which bears no fruit. What mystery is there in this? He replied, Each has its appropriate produce, an appointed season, during the continuance of which it is fresh and blooming, and during their absence dry and withered. To neither of which states is the cypress exposed, being always flourishing, and of this nature are the azads, or religious independence. Fix not thy heart on that which is transitory, for the Deja, or the Tigris, will continue to flow through Baghdad after the race of caliphs is extinct. If thy hand has plenty, be liberal as the date tree, but if it affords nothing to give away, be an azad, or free man, like the cypress. End of the economy chapter. Well, hello, hello, hello. I have just finished the, uh, first chapter. We have just finished the first chapter of Economy, um, which in my lovely 1910 um, Thomas Y. Crowell and Company Publishers edition um, is close to the first hundred pages. Um, And the total length is like 440 pages. So we're not quite a quarter of the way through. Um, which is very exciting to think about. Um, I apologize for not posting for a couple of weeks. Um, As I think I mentioned in the previous episode, my mother um, had sort of passed away kind of suddenly. Um, She was 80, but, and she had cancer, but it was still sudden, sudden enough-ish to interrupt my entire life routine and um, interrupt my life in general, I hate to say. Um, so apologies for any kind of inconsistencies, but, you know, with your help and hopefully sympathy and understanding, um, we will continue to push forward. I, um, I find also that when I'm depressed, I don't necessarily want to do even the things that I really love to do. Um, but, um, I am actually trying to visit Walden on a regular basis and also literally like literally the pond but also literally the book because I find that both um do bring me joy and it's one of those things where I I literally just have to show up and then I'm going to be um I don't know like I want to say the word like rejoiced or refueled or I don't know um there's something there's something life affirming and life and energy giving to me. Um, during COVID all of last year, I think that I, um, like in a healthy way developed agoraphobia as maybe the rest of the world did and did my best to stay inside and away from people. Um, but that also included, um, not swimming in Walden, which is something that I generally have done every summer for my entire life. I live like 20 minutes away Um, and I did go swim, but only once. um, And I did go all the way across. Although I told my mother, I only went halfway because she, um, she was 
hesitant about that and, and was sort of always worried about me. Um, but knock on wood, swimming is my favorite thing. Um, so I only did it once last year. And right now it's still, um, so right now it's May and it's still a little too early to go swimming. But um, Thoreau died on May 6th in uh, 1862. And for many years, I've been wanting to like do something or whatever. Um, I know I have a tour guide friend who like will go and bring roses or flowers to um, people's graves. Anybody that's sort of within, you know, local driving distance, Mount Auburn Cemetery or Sleepy Hollow in Concord or whatever. Um, But I wanted to sort of do something bigger. And um, at least for myself, it was the uh, the two month anniversary also of my mom's death. So I had a little memorial just on the beach Um, and it was small. They don't really allow big crowds. So I had just sort of invited just a couple of friends. Um, And honestly, it was very um, peaceful and moving and um, like, and this is, this is so funny because completely separate from the book, if you ever actually go to visit Walden the Pond, it is an incredible experience. And I feel like this book is a marvelous set of ideas and it's really brilliant and it records his experience, Thoreau's experience of living there for two years, two months, and two days and all the thoughts that went through his head. But I've been lucky to also experience the pond as my own thing or its own thing. And so when I had a memorial sort of for my mother, um, it was sort of a celebration of um, the both of us going there during summers um, my whole life. Um, she's from the Azores and grew up literally with a beautiful view of a... She grew up on an island and there was another island across from her. So she grew up with this beautiful view of the ocean and this mountain in the distance. And water was always a huge, huge um, draw for her and something that she really, really loved. So, um, and also my father had died also kind of suddenly, um, when I was 11, um, uh, in a hospital, it was a very long drawn out, um, horrible thing. And then he ended up dying of a medical error, um, when he was in the hospital. Um, cause I also think the longer you're in a hospital, the, the worse you sort of get, um, so that had happened when I was very young and my most, both my mother and I were sort of in trauma about that for the rest of our lives, but going to Walden every summer and for my mother, it was generally just sort of sitting at the shore. Um, she wasn't a big swimmer, but she just loved, you know, watching the kids and watching, um, looking at like the shoreline cause there are all these tiny little fish and, you know, all these branches and sometimes the pollen just on the shore. And there's a, sometimes if there's wind, there's a little bit of waves um, and, you know, insects and animals and turtles. And it's, it's a lovely, beautiful, calming place. And I feel like calm doesn't even begin to describe it. Um, but the very fact that we had that kind of a resource... And I'm an only child, so it was very, um, when my father died, and he was, he, my father was American, so that, I think, was another aspect of our connection to the larger world. And when we lost him, we lost that connection. But having Walden 
um, we had a connection to the natural world. And, uh, you know, I've heard this from hikers and I've heard this from people who just like being out in nature and exploring nature that it's, um, it takes you to another place, like mentally, you know, um, that it's a really beautiful um, experience. You know, like they say that your brain function changes um, when you are, you know, like I think the Japanese call it like, you know, a forest bath or whatever that your, um, that your whole, your whole body changes. And I feel like Walden is one of those places where, um, even though like there's a main road, <laughs> like, you know, a hundred, 200 feet from the beach, from the main beach. Um, it's a, it's a place where you can suddenly slip into that other, um, that otherworldly thing. So anyway, as I was saying, on May 6th, we had a celebration of life for my mother, as well as for Henry David Thoreau. And I had sort of put it out there on Facebook. And I was like, um, you know, Henry can be the host, and he better make sure that it's sunny. And for some reason, that was literally the only day that week that was sunny. So um, and I, you know, I feel him there all the time. I, I never know what that means, but it's true, <laughs> whatever. Um, anyway, to get back to the actual commentary for this chapter, um, I really think that it's funny when he's talking, because uh, I, I feel like I feel like the section that I just read is really um, funny because he's being so harsh about people who own furniture. You know, he's sort of like um, not quite Marie Kondo, but he's definitely of the belief that like why are people interested in owning like furniture? And I'm sure he, he has, you know, in the 1840s, um, it was really common to go to somebody else's house and to have them say, Oh, look at this beautiful sideboard and look at this beautiful thing. And look at how much money I've spent on whatever. And I totally get that and how disgusting and annoying that is. Um, and I love his, his expression when he's like, Anytime I see somebody moving, I can't tell if it's a poor man or a rich man because, like, boxes and all the all the crap is kind of the same. Um, I love that he's he's like the reason that we move is to get rid of our furniture, and he repeatedly talks about burning things up. You know, he's just like, like he's afraid. Like, I think in the modern day, he would be the perfect person to sort of like be talking against like the concept of hoarding anything. Um, but I also really wonder about like his own kind of living situation. Cause he, he calls it out. He's like, you know, when you talk to somebody who acts as if they don't have any money or they don't have any, um, items, he's like, you talk to them and usually they're like, there's stuff in storage. So he had been actually living with his family off and on and sometimes living with the Emersons. And um, at least for me, from my personal experience, I find that there's something um, uh, a little bit ingenuous about what he's talking about here when he's saying that, oh, some people have put stuff in storage, even though they say that they have nothing. Because he goes on and on, he lists exactly what he has in his little cabin. Um, but I'm sure there's more stuff that his mom is like just keeping for him <laughs> at her house. You know, like this is a really common thing. Um, 
and frankly, if you know, if you if you ever had a chance to talk to him, if you meet him face to face, if you talk to his ghost, like you can sit down with him and sort of say, like, well, what did you mean about this chapter? And he's saying, oh, well, you know, nobody should own anything. And then you can say, all right, so um, what about your journals? And then he would say, oh, well, you know, my journals, uh, they're, they're a thing. And he would say, well, you know, you kept your journals in a box. It's like, well, of course, I had to build a box, take care of my journals and whatever. So, like, all that stuff about, like, you have stuff and then you get more stuff and then you have stuff to keep the stuff in you know I feel like that's a little bit I mean it's a little bit inconsistent but again he's also trying to argue for like simplicity simplicity let's just try to figure out what are the real basic needs um you know and then he he goes into this whole thing of like um like I feel like he's trying a little too hard maybe to fit it in to the um the customs of some savage nations. Um, you know, he talks about a busk, um, the feast of first fruits, the custom of the Muklas Indians, uh, where he talks about like them just burning everything, you know, every so often. And another one where they burn something every, you know, 52 years. Um, and I think that that's, I think he's exaggerating to make a point, of course, as he usually does. Um, but I also think that there's, um, you know, like he's exaggerating. There's, there's stuff that you have. And so for instance, a person living today, there's so much stuff available and our houses are just full of like stuff, like not even pens and pencils and things that, you know, items that could be found in a house like his back in the day. Um, I mean, there are just so many, like there are dollar stores, there's, there's Walmart, there's CVS, there's Walgreens, million places where you can buy stuff. And then even if you know you have it, you might need to buy it again because you can't find it among all the other stuff that you own. Even if you're not a hoarder, um, this is one of the things about living in a modern society where sometimes it's easier to, um, you know, buy another I don't know, stapler or whatever, if you can't find the stapler that you know you have somewhere, but, you know, the kid borrowed it or, um, you know, it's downstairs in the basement somewhere and you don't know where it is. So it's just things like that where you know that he's, um, he's trying to be practical. He keeps trying to, to sort of make this point. Um, but I, I just, I just really wonder what his actual circumstances were like. Um, cause I can understand that you can reduce everything for two years and it's really lovely and it actually gives you a sense of spaciousness and clarity and clean. Um, and another part he talks about, like, he had collected some rocks and then he noticed they were, you know, collecting dust and he just threw them out the window. You know, he was he was a collector. <laughs> he collected specimens. He, he was constantly um, collecting scraps of paper and then writing things down and... Also, as a historian, you kind of wish he kept everything, you know, um, and there, the Concord Museum actually was started by a guy who collected everything that people were essentially throwing out, um, you know, or p that people wanted to get rid of, right? Because he talks about, Henry talks about um, somebody, you know, somebody who died and then the auction, um, you know, where people just bought everything up, you know, they don't necessarily need these items, but somebody else had owned them and 
you know, now there, there are things that exist in space that people do not want to burn up. Um, I have, you know, I've certainly had friends who are in the, you know, in the, in the aging process, um, they want to start giving things away, you know, and, um, I believe there's a Swedish term for it of trying to declutter your life. Um, so that by the time you reach the end of life, you don't have any physical possessions and that, you know, you don't have to leave your, you don't have to burden your family with all of the stuff that you have. Um, and I'm certainly, so I'm certainly facing that situation. Um, my mother having just died, I have inherited her, her lovely house that I had left all my stuff in. Um, and you know, so now our possessions have essentially merged. So now I, I own everything, I guess. Um, and as I'm trying to clear things out, I'm trying to figure out what's hers and what's mine and what can go out. Um, because it's, you know, it's hard enough to get rid of somebody else's stuff, but now I feel like I'm the, um, anyway, (laughs) I get Henry's point about stuff being a little bit overwhelming. That's, that's the point I wanted to make. Um, and, uh, oh, and he... And then he talks about jobs, um, and he casually mentions that he, uh, for five years, he, um, uh, he maintained himself thus solely by the labor of his own hands, found that by working six weeks in a year, he could meet all the expenses of living. Um, and he, like, that's marvelous, and I think that the economic situation of the 1840s is very much different um, to the... Um, decade or the century that we find ourselves in. Um, I know that there's no social security waiting for me um, whenever I finally do retire. Um, So there is also the idea of um, saving and not just saving for the sake of saving, but saving for your future self. Um, But he's talking about like, you know, like I always think of the ant and the grasshopper and the ant is constantly putting stuff away, putting food away. Um, kind of acting like a hoarder. Um, and the grasshopper is just like, you know, sort of living for the day and will eat whenever he's hungry and will enjoy the summer and then kind of freeze in the winter. Um, and so what he's, what he's talking about, he's like, this is what I did, you know, and, um, and he even talks about mentioning, uh, that he was teaching, I think. Um, and he wanted to, um, p- to pick huckleberries for a living. Um, you know, which is fabulous. Um, the, the main job that he finally settled in, I think in his early forties, um, and probably his late thirties, um, he was actually a surveyor. And so kind of the same, um, uh, you know, atmosphere of a job, like you're constantly outside, um, and a surveyor was really perfect for what he wanted to do because he was constantly walking. He would walk four hours a day and was kind of annoyed when he couldn't. Um, but he also mentions that the reason that you would need a surveyor is because you want to build on the land and you essentially want to cut down all the trees and ruin all the natural beauty and create, you know, more quote unquote civilization. So, that's one of those jobs where I feel like he he stayed true to himself, but he does sort of recognize that he sold out a little bit. 
Um, and, you know, he has this great line. I have since learned that trade curses everything it handles. Um, which, you know, certainly true. Um, but again, it's, it's like, you know, you, you give up the, the, what is his quote? Um, a thing is worth the amount of time that you're willing to give up for it. So if you're willing to give up time now, hopefully you won't be homeless when you're older. Um, and that's a really hard bargain to continue to live your life around. Um, you know, and I, th- I think he just sort of is criticizing, um, like people who are like some are industrious and appear to love labor for its own sake, or perhaps because it keeps them out of worse mischief. Um, to, to such, I have at present nothing to say. Um, you know, those who would not know what to do with more leisure than they now enjoy, I might advise, advise to work twice as hard as they do. Uh, work till they pay for themselves and get their quote-unquote free papers. Um, you know, and then he talks about how good it is to be a day laborer. Um, and, and then he also, he, he sort of emphasizes, um, that people shouldn't listen to him (laughs) after all of this. Like, I love when people sort of like point to Thoreau and they're like, oh, he told people to do this and he told people to do that. And I might even be guilty of that sometimes, but I always feel like, you know, if you were having a conversation with him, you know, you would be like, you know, you're contradicting yourself here. And like Walt Whitman says, you know, I'm full of, I'm full of contradictions. Um, you know, if I, if I contradict myself, so be it, uh, whatever that quote is. Um, and you know, like, you know, I contain multitudes. Um, you know, there's a, there's a line, you know, like I would not have anyone adopt my mode of living for any account. Um, for besides that before he'd fairly learned it, I might've found another for myself. Like, by the time somebody is like truly living as I'm living, like I'm, I'm going to be doing something else. So like, I'm not going to be consistent. So you guys shouldn't be consistent either. You should like, he's sort of saying that every person should be exploring life for themselves. Um, which is, which is absolutely fabulous. Um, you know, I think that that's the, that's the ultimate lesson that we always want to learn from um, Henry and from all of his writings that, you know, it's like, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, please, like, um, you know, figure it out for yourself. And he's, he's always like, this is what I have figured out. It might work, it might not, whatever. Um, and then the second part of the reading he really gets into philanthropy and reformers, um, which is a really interesting segue, I think. Um, you know, because there's this whole idea of like, all right, so you do whatever you have to do for money for yourself. But then philosophically, how do you help other people? And you know, I think that he maybe had some weird experiences of trying to give charity and trying to like whatever. And, you know, or maybe he's noticing what his, what other people are doing. Um, and he finds it to be a little, um, I find him to be really cynical in this part. Um, and really, um, just not, um, you know, like, (laughs) 
This doesn't bode well for the idea of charity or philanthropy, um, which, you know, it's, it's, you know, he mentions Howard and then he also mentions, um, you know, a, a pastor who's, um, uh, where is it? A reverend lecturer in England on England. And, you know, he talks about like the best people and then he talks about the people so far above the rest. And these are the major philanthropists of the day, Penn, Howard and Mrs. Fry. Um, you know, I, th- I think that that's, um, that, you know, it, it makes an interesting point that, you know, people can think they're doing the best for other people and they can offer them something good. But at the same time, he's like, if somebody's going to offer to help me, I'm going to run as fast as I can in the other direction. Um, because the whole idea of philanthropy and even the reform movement, like I get that, but so as I've mentioned, I also run a Facebook group called Transcendentalist 2021. And we are talking a lot about reformers and in the month of May, we're working on disability. Um, and so there's, um, uh, um, Samuel Ward Howe, who actually started the Perkins School for the Blind, which, you know, or Samuel Gridley Howe, am I, am I confusing? One of them is, um, his wife's father. So no, his father. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm confusing these names. Look them up. Um, the, the founder of the Perkins School for the Blind. Because um, there were a lot of people in the reform movement who were like really trying to, well, like honestly, trying to push the needle, trying to move the needle on um, institutions that kind of didn't exist or the institutions that needed help. So things like mental hospitals were being created, um, you know, and, and when I say this, I sort of mean like, People were beginning to understand that not everybody should just be like thrown into jail all at once because somebody like Margaret Fuller would visit the jail and she's like, yeah, so there are some people who are, you know, prostitutes and there are some people who have committed crimes. Um, But then there are also people who are just, you know, blind and, and quote unquote dumb and, you know, you know, not mentally healthy and everybody's just sort of put together and, um, it makes them worse because it's like, it's a, it's a worse situation. So I feel like that things were extreme back then and the reformers were trying to change things, you know, and this is the same for the abolitionists and whatever, like just trying to move the needle to, you know, improve the lot of mankind. Um, the, but a lot of these reforms, some of them helped and some of them, you know, created models that, you know, like the Perkins School for the Blind is a great example of ultimately being a success story. Um, I think that there were a lot of times when society itself didn't understand how to handle people who needed more help. And I feel like reading this part of the chapter, you sort of see the argument of, um, you know, who, like, should society be taking care of everybody in an institution? Is it the individual family that needs to sort of take care of their own? Um, The whole idea of, 
of, you know, like the cynical idea of, you know, people trying to give charity, trying to do well, and not actually improving the lot of people who need help the most. Um, he doesn't really offer any other solutions because <laughs> there are people who do need help. And he, um, you know, Thoreau is, is um, you know, just um, like, yeah, so like this. I believe that what so saddens the reformer is not his sympathy with his fellows in distress, but though he be the holiest son of God, is his private ail. So I feel like that that's something that we still face today, where people are so distrustful of charities or social programs or um, like even big government, which is something that sort of coming into fashion and coming into power a little bit more of like, yeah, let's use our taxes to not only improve roads and highways, but like improve schools and improve daycare and improve care for the elderly, like all of that. Um, but there's this, like the whole argument against it is, you know, oh, the people who are fighting for that are just trying to be pious. And at some point you have to say, well, you know, like what if pious doesn't enter into it? You know, like, what if people aren't doing it because they want to glorify themselves? Like, what if genuinely people just want to help other people? How does that happen? And how can you institutionalize something good as opposed to, like, institutionalizing racism or, you know, other other things that are inherently difficult and um, laws that that make life difficult for, like, whole groups of people? Um, so I think that, I think that that piece of economy is, is kind of a, an odd, an odd place for him to go, um, and an odd way for him to sort of end up this chapter, um, you know, and then when he's talking about like the cypress tree, I think that's really interesting. Um, if the hand has plenty, be liberal as the date tree, um, and... Um, I know a lot about the date tree because my name is Tamara. My name is Tammy Rose, um, but that comes from Tamara, which means the date, the fruit of the date tree, which is actually a palm tree. Um, so I think that that's, I always feel like that's um, sort of like a private shout out from Henry directly to me. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for listening and I will see you on the next episode.